Hello coaches, welcome back to the podcast. As you probably noticed, the podcast was interrupted for some weeks as I contracted COVID-19. Thankfully, I'm now back and excited to be with you this month of December. Today's guest comes from Great Britain. He is 25 years old and has been a great ambassador of modern coaching in basketball. His name is Alex Herma, has worked with NBA Europe, elite athletes, and is now in Italy, launching his college prep team. Coach, wherever you are, please sit back, relax, and enjoy our conversation. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to the fifth episode of Career Mode. Uh, I have here Alex Rama. Uh, Alex, it's nice, nice to see you. No introductions needed. How, how are you? All good? I'm great, Diogo. Thanks for having me on. I'm looking forward to this. Perfect. I think this is a great addition to, to the podcast. It will be very interesting for, for all coaches. And I would like to start by something, uh, something you just actually, I think, posted very recently about the muscle uh, memory article. And maybe we can link that to, to other topics. So I'll start with that. For, for people that maybe haven't read or maybe don't even know about the, the, what you're talking about there, uh, what's... What, what is it, what you try to share there? Absolutely. So mus this concept of muscle memory has been on my blog list for a very long time. And really it came about, I, re I remember, especially uh, in my MBA years, I remember I had quite a few dinners where this, there was one week, I think I was in, uh, in Charlotte for, for the NBA All-Star and um, muscle memory this idea of muscle memory came up at two of the kind of nba star slash coach dinners and i i just remember thinking at the time how how ridiculous that we're in the 21st century and muscle memory is something that's that coaches still believe in and it's 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 really to me i think it, it shows how the importance of just basic kind of motor science is sometimes too much neglected in our sport and it's to me it shows how for me it, it's it's obviously one of the biggest myths in in basketball and, and i think other sports too but um it's it's just fascinating it was fascinating to me that this myth can kind of be perpetuated and and coaches still really believe in it So that was kind of the premise behind the article. I just wanted to outline some of the science, especially in, in terms of motor learning, as to why there's no such thing as, as muscle memory. And I, I think particularly it pertains to um, spot shooting the most when, and I, I remember just conversations I had during that, those dinners that I referenced where you know, coaches and staff would be talking about how important it is to do spot shooting take hundreds of the same shots, bang them out to improve muscle memory. And, and that to me, it, it's, it's really interesting when you look at spot shooting, because I've just been observing it just with some of the players here. And when players do it, it is so unrealistic to the actual demands of what happens in a game. And what you typically see is a passes come from angles, which really sh shooters will never receive the ball from unless there's like an offensive rebound and a kick out, which is obviously a, something which happens a lot less than the typical spot up shots that you would take. And then also you see kind of the speed of the shot. You don't really see any type of zero seconds, the type of speed that you would see in a game when you have defenders. So for me, I feel like spot shooting is when it pertains to 
coaches talking about using spot shooting to, to build muscle memory, it, it simply doesn't make sense. And just last point on this, Diogo, um, I think, you know, I think I respect, I have a lot of great relationships with NBA coaches, and I've learned, I learned so much, like my NBA years, I really, really enjoy. But I think to me, it's, it shows the importance of having, I, I think that on, on staffs, whether it's NBA teams, EuroLeague teams, professional teams, and even youth academies, I feel like it's so important to have one member of staff who is informed by some of the science and evidence which exists to, to kind of bridge the gap between old and new. For sure. Well, that, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, it's nice to, to hear you talking about that. And, and I would just like to, I mean, maybe can, can we relate that and make a transition here to, to talk about the CLA approach? Because it's something that you definitely have been, you know, preaching a lot and trying to share with the world of coaches on how to do it, why it's important to do it. So, uh, you know, for, for any young coaches, how would you, or for any coaches that have been doing what, or have using the same methods as they were used uh, when they played, how would you start with, with the most basic information for, for CLA? Okay, so CLA essentially stands for the constraint-led approach, uh, has a lot of fancy words such as non-linear ecological dynamics but essentially cla is is what we call it um i think mark o'sullivan he's, he's a, a football coach doing great work at aik in stockholm i've i've been fortunate to spend quite a bit of time with mark and, and i i consider him to be one of the leading practitioners um to cla in in worldwide and and i've learned a lot from him and he has a really good way of uh, describing it for coaches. And he, he's kind of like, he shows this diagram and he talks about kind of any drill or small-sided game that you design in practice. Is there a basketball involved? Obviously, I'm adapting this to basketball, not football. Is there a basketball involved? Is there an opponent? Is there a direction of play and a consequence if you lose possession? And it's essentially, it's a really simple way of, thinking of designing your drills and practice in a way which aligns with CLA because there's CLA can be quite complex. And I feel particularly for like volunteer coaches and, and even professional coaches who have been doing things a different way. Uh, the language is a big barrier to people learning and, and understanding it. So I think the way Mark has simplified it is really, really good. Essentially, if, if for coaches listening to this, I'll go a little bit deeper now and build on that. You, you basically imagine, it, we call it the pyramid of constraints. It's like a triangle. And um, the idea is that three different types of constraints are what shapes learning and what leads to players improving in skill. So you have starts off with individual constraints, and this is everything related to the basketball player. So this is things such as their height, their wingspan, their weight, their perceptual skills, um, their mood quality, and things obviously, these typically are long-term things which uh, take longer to, to change, such as obviously height, wingspan, but obviously if you're working uh, in, a, in a youth environment, and maybe you have a player who grows five inches in a year, that's something important to consider because think about how that growth is going to shape, shape their skill in terms of coordination, motor control, et cetera. Um, so that's the idea behind individual constraints. You do have some short term things such as, like I said, sleep, mood, 
things which change quickly, but typically they're, they're more fixed, fixed and longer term. Then you have environmental constraints. So this is the thing that coaches don't have as much control over. So it would be things like the, the surface, uh, the surface of the gym, the size of the gym, the humidity, maybe you're playing at an altitude, maybe it's outside and inside. So that's the one I, I typically tell coaches to worry about the least because the task constraints are the most important ones. And these are the, the kind of the, the rules of the drill of the game, as, as you like to speak. And this could be uh, some of the most common things would be how many players you have involved in the activity. Is it a two-on-one, a two-on-two? Is it a one-on-one, three-on-three, et cetera? The space you play in, for instance, is it a half court or full court? Are you playing in half of the half court? Is it in the paint? Are you adding in trips where you do a half court, then you do a transition trip, then you do a transition trip back? Then it's the rules of the game. Of course, you have our basketball specific rules and then rules which coaches could constrain. And of course, that could be things like manipulating a point system. So for instance, from my team here at College Prep, we have our own scoring system where we uh, overemphasize the shots we want. So open rim finishes and corner open threes are worth more than, uh, than for instance, a, a mid-range, which, which a contested mid-range would be worth zero. So that's another kind of constraint. And then, you know, just something I shared yesterday on YouTube, something that I use a lot, guided defense, where you also can place constraints on, on the defense to shape learning on the offensive and defensive side of the ball. So for instance, it could be, constraining the coverages so the defense can only use particular coverages whether they're guarding a closeout maybe they're playing help d maybe it's the primary defender on a finish maybe it's pick and roll but you're constraining what coverages they use and the idea is that basically you're nudging players towards certain solutions and as we do this we are not talking about a specific technique which we are imposing on the players as the coach and that's basically the traditional model of coaching you see, which is still the dominant model in basketball, whether it's NBA, NCAA, Europe, whatever. The traditional model is still the dominant school. And this is where the coach shows one perfect technique, which players then have to replicate and they do it one on zero, two on zero, or they execute some type of offensive pattern five on zero. Yeah. You know, it's, it's the same. Um, and that's the traditional model. And CLA really, it, it operates in the contrary to that. Um, and it, it really, the idea is that perception, decision, action is, is integrated. So uh, we, we don't do anything in, in isolation. Everything is more representative of the game. And I think the constraints are really, it's where the magic lies. And I, like for me, just with the players I've, I've had this year, it's the first time properly that I've been able to apply CLA to everything in terms of player dev, team dev, and we have seven practices a week, team and player development, athletic performance, CLA. And in three months, the results, I, I really think have been incredible. And the players are happy, the players love it. And just their whole understanding and skill, like, and obviously, you know, I have a very specific system of, and style of play, which we're gonna talk about later. But I feel like the CLA really, it, it, it's, it works so well when you run a style of play, which is more conceptual because players are empowered to make decisions. And I think it's like, when you, when you look at a lot of old school offenses, whether it's just running set plays, old school motion offenses, um, of course, you know, if you teach that with CLA, it's going to be more effective than the traditional model. But 
running a more open kind of game model, it blends so well with the constraints that approach. For sure, for sure. And I think, but you said there's something, well, many things that that sum very well what you've what you've been doing there, but also what you just said now. So even if you don't uh, run such a freedom model of playing, and if you still have to go with set plays by any reasons, any constraints that you have in your program, it still helps if your players know how to disrupt it, right? As, a, as in everything. So I think that's a, a very interesting thing to talk about because it means that coaches don't have to change everything they've done. Things can go slowly, right? Yeah, um, totally. And I think set plays have a time and place and it can be a really effective way to play. Um, especially obviously professionally pro level. I, I believe, I really believe though for, uh, at the youth levels, kind of under 21 and younger, I, I really believe that conceptual and just playing in terms of transition to triggers, to coverage solutions, to dominoes, I, I believe it's that it's the most effective way to play just because of what players learn from that and what they can take, take with them as they, as they progress to that next level. Of course, there is a time for sets. You have to put sets in because that's what you see at the next level, especially here in Europe. But um, I, I really believe the, the kind of the habits that my players are getting just from this more conceptual framework, I believe it's going to make them a lot more effective as basketball players um, for their future careers. For sure. And, and I'll, I'll, for anyone listening, I'll, I'll also uh, suggest to, to see your, your, your social media because you, for sure, you are an advocate of, of freedom and let the, the give freedom to the, to the players within a, a conceptual structure. But at the same time, you still use uh, you know sets or s scripted offense after timeouts, and that's a, a, an important thing because it, for, for anyone, I mean, I've had conversations where then people say, well, but at the pro level they have to know all the combinations of sets and everything. So you still work on those things of them knowing what happens on the court to, to, but at the same time, it's very specific moments in the game. Absolutely. We, we, we talk about with our offense, we divide it into um, live ball and dead ball. So live ball is when the ref doesn't touch the ball on a stop or a score. And then we're just into our triggers. And we have two types of triggers. We have fastball triggers and slow ball triggers. So a fastball trigger is when we're advancing the ball at speed down the floor and the defense isn't completely set, but we are neutral. So we don't have dominoes. There's no kind of advantage anywhere. So we got to run a trigger, but we would typically run a much quicker trigger, which doesn't take time to get into. For instance, that would be a get, uh, sorry, a solo or one-on-one -on -one in transition. It starts with our solo where you just have to read your defender. So if you have a double or a triple gap, look for that, especially if it's a matchup advantage. You don't fancy the matchup, then it's a two-person action, a duet, so it'll be a get or a pick and roll. Moving away from dribble handoffs, DHOs this year, just I don't feel like we create as much advantage out of them. The only time we run a DHO is if we try and run a get, but our PVAD goes. PVAD is a Mike McKay term, position, vision, anticipate your decision. So if we don't have good PVAD on a get, for instance, we're too high up, then we turn it into the DHO to get a better position, but that's the only time. And then we have three-person actions, trios, which would be things like off-ball screens and flares and pistol. So those are our fastball triggers because they're very quick to get into and you can just do it out of natural arrival spacing. Now, obviously, if because we seek the sideline and we go to the nearest sideline, 
sometimes there will be possessions where we have an empty corner. doesn't happen as much, but sometimes it will happen. Obviously, then players have to pick a trigger which harmonizes with the empty corner. So typically on an empty, we're just going to a wing pick and roll, bring the, the ball handler, brings the ball to the front of the bench, whatever, whether it's our bench or the other team, and we go pick and roll with the empty corner. If it's two filled corners, which is our shake spacing, um, then we're typically into pistol, drag, screen away, flares for that trail. So that's kind of our fastball offense. Slow ball would be still on when the ref doesn't touch it. So stop or a score, but the defense is more set and the handler is coming up more slowly. So maybe it took a while to inbound it. Maybe it was a long rebound or just the defense with the set, maybe any situation where they just get back quick. Then we would run something which we can take an extra second to get into or enroll more players. So that could be a quartet for four-person action. So that our, our slow ball triggers, we have stagger and double drag. Um, maybe we might introduce one more on scrape. Scrape is basically a screen away or flare, which is the support trigger going into a pick and roll or a get, which is the star trigger. So okay. it basically warms the defense up for the main event. And the idea is that it, it helps us arrive alone and get into that pick or get as a two-on-one instead of a two-on-two because two, we have some element of separation. So that's our live ball. And then our dead ball is sets. And we have two sets right now, really simple, both out of a diamond. We've got a fist up and a fist out. So fist is diamond. Fist out is basically diamond into step up, pick and roll. But again, we emphasize being creative. So for instance, instead of running a step up every time, Sometimes we might flip it, send them towards the middle and send them to the baseline. Sometimes we might go screen it. Sometimes we might veer pick and roll where we, where we go set the pick and then screen away. So again, we're creative from the set. And the moment we have an advantage in the set, we're not running the set, we're applying the three rules of dominoes. So that means, say, for instance, on the first diamond, if the hand is driven the ball and their on-ball defender is asleep, we're just going to drive it downhill, start dominoes. If a player coming off that kind of that downstream in the diamond, if their defender's completely tightly chasing, we just curl it, start dominoes, get a rim finish. So the idea is that we're relentless looking for the dominoes and at every part of the set, we're looking to break the script and, and just start our, our dominoes basketball. Um, and of course, you know, out of timeouts and stuff, I do my timeouts. We will tweak a lot of the triggers we run. So for instance, our pistol, how we run pistols or a get into a flare. So maybe we'd tweak that. So maybe we'd, instead of doing get into a flare, maybe it's a ghost screen into a flare with a Ricky, or maybe we, we do some, some type of more elaborate action off a double drag. Maybe we go double drag into a stagger or double drag into an elevator. So trying to show them all the actions they need for their careers, but the ATOs are kind of the time we used to do that. And again, just getting the, the players really smart. So now we're getting to a level where they can go off script. So for instance, our base sequence in the pistol, like I said, is get into a flare, but now the players are empowered to be deceptive and go off script. So maybe instead of running the get, the passer will pass it to the wing and instead of coming to get it back, they just go off the flare immediately. Sure. If that makes sense. Maybe the player coming to the get, instead of coming for it, they're set a pick, a step up to the empty corner and then come off the flare. So we, we call it like DNA. You're, you have your strands of helix. Can you alter the bases using the player's good knowledge of triggers and actions, which they now have to go off script? 
Um, for instance, another in context example, our double drag, how we run our double drag is as a staircase. So the first pick is higher, second is slightly lower. So the idea is that it prevents an under, not able to go under the second one. The first one is a scripted slip, the first picker. The second picker is, is a ghost screen. So that's our base sequence. But now the guys are getting smart and maybe they do something different where they will, maybe they will uh, screen the screener instead. Maybe they will go set a, a veer pick and roll with the single side. So they're getting really, really smart, really unpredictable. And um, for me, it's really fun to, to see to see what you can do. And I, I think the biggest thing is play, coaches don't trust players enough. And some of my guys are 16, making incredible reads. Uh, and I just think sometimes how cool it would be to see this done more at the pro level in Europe. Sure. And, and I think, so it's very interesting there uh, how you basically described your offense, your, your, your ideas behind it. Uh, but it, it does make sense. And... Uh, you know what, what you just said. So players are, have the freedom to disrupt the the you know the the main triggers, or even if you're going into a more slow ball situation, you can still disrupt it. And uh, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but those that thing, so that uh, uh, that possibility comes from one the freedom that you give them, and then at the same time, you know they have played hopefully with you and before maybe as well, so much conceptual offense, so, so much trying to read the defender more than playing any set, any structure scripted that they already know and start to see the patterns when they, they play any triggers, right? So so that gives them the freedom to uh, to read faster the, the, the defense and try to see the, where's the open space. Exactly. Great. Well, that, that's that's really good to know i mean i think you just briefly uh, summarized a lot of what you have on mind which is really great for anyone that's ever uh, seen it yet i definitely recommend uh, and uh, but just before we move on i'll just come back to to the cla because um i mean one thing that so i think the concept of trying to constrain the game to get something from the players for for, for getting them to to arrive somewhere that you have as as the destination for for that scenarios of uh, uh, of basketball uh, I think it's it's easy to understand but at, at least this year I've been a little bit more challenged to try to find um, so explicit or well uh, so because I think you can play CLA and you can constrain the game impl in implicit ways and explicit ways right because you can I can constrain the game and say, as you, as you, I think you, uh, you said as well, you have to use this skill or you have to use some type of this skill. And at the same time, for sure, you are constraining the creativity or you can say it in a more, a more broad scenario. You just have to be the fast, like you have to try to put the ball as fast as possible on the floor, for example, just to give some type of, of scenario here. So uh, is that something that you've been uh, changing? Is that something that you have to adapt from player to player? That, that would be interesting to know. Yeah, I think um, sometimes there's a risk of of over-constraining. And I think CLA is a lot more than just using limiting constraints okay. and saying, okay, you can only do this. Now, of course, it's useful and it gives, for instance, we, we do a lot of breakdown small-sided games. That's like the type of small-sided game we do the most. 
where it's like a small sided game or for a particular off a particular trigger because we get to work both our defense and our offense. So obviously that that is kind of limiting because we're saying, okay, you can only score off a pick and roll and the defense is only playing drop coverage or weak coverage. So it's really specific, right? And maybe we we do a lot with all our pick and roll on all our picks to simplify it at the start of the year. You have to, there are basically only four ways to score. I mean, a little bit more, five. Reject early, late or bingo. So that's kind of like the setup. Slip the screen, ghost it or flip or punish the help. So really, really simple. We're just getting onto seals now and kind of sealing, sealing off like the recovering defender on an aggressive coverage. So it will be six. So super simple. But sometimes I do believe you really have to constrain those things heavily to get the players good at it. And this is why I believe a lot of, I think like for me, the sweet spot is these breakdown small-sided games are the most important thing. I think a lot of coaches either according to two traps where they either too traditional and do all, all these drills and not really any small sided games, or they just play too much five on five. And for me, the sweet spot is these breakdown small sided games. And it's where we notice the biggest difference in terms of understanding and skill improvement with our guys. Um, I do think just in terms of limiting constraints, sometimes it can be too simple to do things like, okay, you can only score with, uh, your left hand in this thing, you can only score this particular way. Sometimes that over constrains and you've got to be careful because then it might lead to habits which are unrealistic to what mm-hmm. players would actually do in the game. For sure. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot, of, a lot of sense. Thanks for that because I think it's, it's important and at least for if there is anyone that's trying to apply more and more in the CLA, as I've been doing the past, the past years for sure, uh, you know, you kind of go and discover at yourself pace how much you can do and how much, uh, you, you know, freedom you have within within that as well for, from a coaching perspective. But I'd like to talk, so because we've talked about your offense and especially what you're doing now in Italy with the, uh, with the prep team. Uh, your, so maybe talk, can you talk about uh, what's the project itself and what you've been to, what are you trying to do? Because definitely there, there aren't many programs like that, if any, in Europe. So what are you trying to, to do differently? Absolutely. I, I think like my vision behind prep was I wanted to show a different way to develop players, a, a way based on modern thinking and evidence, kind of all the stuff we've spoken about in terms of, yeah, adopting CLA, modern, the modern style of basketball, I think, though, at the core of it, it's, for me, the most important thing is, is the transformational side of, of coaching and, and the relationship we have with, with, the, with the guys. We've got 14 players, so they're, they're 16 to 19. Um, but I, I really believe that, especially uh, in North America and Europe, I, there's a lot of transactional coaching where coaches coach using fear, punishment, um, the relationship with the players it's very it's like a hierarchy with the, with the coach kind of at the center of everything so really wanted to show how you can still develop high level players but in a transformational way where the, the players are at the heart of everything you do and you can have you can ha- and having a really positive relationship between staff and players and then showing all the 
the benefits of, of using evidence-informed thinking. So applying this to the basketball, the player and team development, the athletic performance, the mindfulness, and then just like the daily habits and what they do at school. Like, uh, and I, I feel like we're very stuck in the past in Europe. It's the old world. And I, for me, it's a shame that all the top clubs aren't really evidence-informed. So there's, there's not, they're not really looking at the literature in terms of CLA, not looking at sports science like nutrition and importance of sleep. Or, I mean, basketball can learn a lot from football academies in this regard, like load management, rest, um, what players do in their downtime, how the players feel, mental health, and it's work-life balance. That to me is the biggest thing, which a lot of, a lot of basketball clubs I feel have no idea like how to actually treat their staff and get the best out of them. So for me, that's all really important. And we, we talk a lot about our values. So we have four, four values. So confident, present, di divergent, um, and connected. And it's kind of at the heart of everything we do, where it's in a practice or off the court, are we kind of, you know, meeting our values and, and, aligning to those in everything we do. So yes, it's a different project. We, we have had a lot of organizational difficulties, so <laughs> to speak, this year. But I think it's, it's part of whenever you try and do something big and different, uh, of course, there will be hurdles along the way to overcome and, and some yeah. elements of adversity to get through. But for me, I'm, I'm really happy because we got a group of 14 amazing guys and some players who could do some really good things like mid-major division one good professional careers and I'm, I'm really excited to see where we can get them to not just in basketball but in, in their lives and and kind of give them the tools to be dependent when they when they leave here for sure i think that's that's a great point i mean from all the conversations we we've had so far that's that always comes right it, it's never just basketball as, as you just said i mean you have guys there now 24 hours because they moved, they went away from their countries to, to live there, to, to live with you, let's say. it. And so there is a responsibility as well to give them more than just basketball practice. And, and that's what they signed up for because they knew you, you, you were trying to do something different. So I think that's really great. And, and I'm excited to see the, the future of the project because it's been only one year. You already yeah. have so much to tell so yeah i mean not one year let's say one <laughs> um, but but yeah and then the so last topic here because uh, i think one and i remember when i met when i met you when was it I think uh barcelona a few years ago in the in the pagosol academy i, I mean about that. Uh, yeah, yeah yeah it was good, good times there but but and i remember because i started watching your stuff and and you as you've been doing and sharing for a long time trying to give, so guided defense and giving options. So option A, B, C, just like a menu uh, uh, on a restaurant. And, and I, I really like it, I really like the idea. But there is always that question of how, uh, and because you're not giving a neutral situation to the defense, right? You're telling always to give some type of advantage to the offense in those setups. And I think there is, there is that question, at least for coaches approaching it now and trying to learn more, uh, that's, that doesn't help the, the the defense, right? Because you are they are creating habits that cannot be that maybe are not so good because it will happen the game and that fear that the players won't be able to decide by themselves. So how do you 
how do you see that? How do you see a coach that brings that question? Okay, so for me, I'd reframe that slightly, and I'd say for every for every option the defense has, the offense has a chance to counter that to create their advantage. And I think guided defense is a lot more than giving the offense just an advantage. For, for instance, let's just take the finishing example that we shared yesterday on the immersion YouTube against the primary defender. Okay, we got three options, three primary options. One could be we slightly trail, the defender slightly trails, but they're not just going to trail the offensive player and let them get a one-on-zero layup. They're going to try and poke the ball loose or block from behind. So they're still, and it's as we do these options, I'm getting the players to think. I know, and I never used to do this at the start. At the start, it was the way I did guided defense was just to give the offense an advantage. I didn't pay enough attention to the defense. And then the problem with that is when you're playing against bad defense, all right, you get the decision and you get repetition at repetition, but it's not like it will be in the game. So now, for instance, say we're doing option A on those primary finishes. Yes, you're trailing, but you're trying to poke the ball or block it from behind. Option B would be you, you run through, but at the same time, you're trying to poke the ball, block it loose and get into your wall up. And then option C would be perfect wall up. So you're actually not giving the offense any type of advantage. You are trying to get back in front. So then the idea is the defense can learn different ways to guard in each situation. For instance, maybe you are playing against a really, this comes back to individual constraints, you'll find yourself on a fast break. You're against a really big guy who's not that mobile and you're a small, quick guard. Maybe the option B, running through, running through him is the best situation because he's not going to have the agility and coordination to counter. And if you do A, he's just going to dunk it. And if you do C, the perfect wall up, he's just going to dunk over you. Yeah. Likewise, if you're a really big athletic guy against a small guard, Option A could be the one to make more sense because you've got a chance to block the ball and use your height. Yeah. Maybe if you're like for like, option C, where you're the same size and getting into the perfect wall up, maybe that's your one. So the idea of guided defense is players learn all the ways to play defense at the same time, and they have to consider and be mindful of what coverages they should use for particular situations. And I think, you know... All right, that's just one example of one-on-one, -on -one, but it could be two-on-two -two in a pick-and-roll situation. We were doing it yesterday, just two-on-two, -two, three reps, and then it's your ABC. So one rep was our black, which is our quick hedge, quick show recover, and the constraints were if the pass wasn't perfect to the roller or the defense got a touch, it would be the defensive point. So that was kind of – because obviously, anytime you do a, an aggressive coverage like that, you're going to be tagging, but then you have to think, okay – I don't want to do this three on three because they needed more reps two on two. So they had more time learning how to hedge and more time knowing how to pass against it. That's so then of course the, the solution to, you have to then think what constraint can I use to make up for the fact that there's going to be attack? Oh, the pass has to be perfectly in rhythm to yeah. that rolling player, et cetera. Right. Second rep was a trap. So it's, it's red. So that's our aggressive trap. Same thing, now we short roll. So again, that pass to the short roll has to be perfect in rhythm for it to count. And option C was uh, weak, our drop coverage. So again, I'm guiding it, but we're not necessarily looking to, we're not looking to give the offense an advantage. In fact, we're looking to neutralize them, put them at disadvantage hmm. so we can get the ball back defensively. Okay, yeah, no, that's, 
those are great points. I mean, and and it makes sense because so let just coming back to that one on one example because I think it, it simplifies things. Uh, the 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 let's say the the heart of the heart of coaching here is not really so much the drill itself or or the setup, but but the debriefing that you have to have after because you as soon as you introduce that then you have to ask ask defense as as you you've done and since since the days we we actually coached together in in Belgium uh, that's you know the evaluation of coaching was actually not about the drill the small sided game but on the debriefing we were doing afterwards because yes. the drill for the coach or the job for the coaches doesn't finish yes. with, with the game. And this is where you have to have a language. Like it's all good having good small sided games, but if you just play the same small sided games every practice and you don't use different constraints and there's no kind of scaffolding and you're not doing debriefs, uh, it's, yeah. oh, it's, just the same. You know, it's not going to have much of an effect. So the debriefs are critical and you can't use the same questions every time when you debrief. You have to find different ways to engage and ask open versus closed questions. And I think that's where you have to have a language because if you don't have a very specific terminal terminology, it's very difficult to do quick debriefs, which don't waste practice time and to get everyone on the same page. So that's why I give everything a name. And it's yeah, makes sense. very specific, it's very quick. And it makes coaching in games a lot easier. For sure, yeah. Well, great points here. I mean, we had we had some good forty uh, uh, minutes of of talk here. I would love uh, to to ask you this last question. I always do in the in the episodes, and I think with you it will be uh, even more interesting because I mean you're you're so young and had the opportunity to travel so much already through all the projects you've been through, also NBA Europe and. Um, and you're trying to 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 also share something with the basketball community all over the world. So you're not restricting yourself to any continent or country. And so, what is something that you've taken out of uh, out of abroad? I mean, you, you are from Britain and you're now in Italy, so I guess everything works for you as an answer. But uh, what is it? What what is something that you've taken for yourself, and you can take this for basketball or non basketball stuff? Okay, so I think. Um you can learn obviously every step of the way and you can learn wherever you are in the world for me one of the biggest things i i don't agree with is the fact that is the stereotypes we have in basketball for and the stereotypes we apply to coaches based on where they're from or where they coach so for instance oh because you're a serbian coach you must be amazing because you're from england you know nothing Yeah. right and for me it's like okay i've learned a lot of course just from watching practices and things but i'll be completely honest Diogo. the most i've learned is from my self-study um if anything a lot of the practices that i've seen at all levels of the game from nba down to grassroots for the most part it's more me challenging the things i'm seeing in the practice and thinking all right i don't want to do it this way okay and of course that's useful but for me most of my learning has come from from early on from Chris Oliver, Mike McKay, Pete Lonergan. Those are like my three kind of big influences. And still today, I consider those, those guys kind of my, my mentors. And I'm, I'm pretty lucky because I think to have Chris, Mike and Pete, it's yeah. really the best at what they yeah. do. And now, but the, but the thing is I'm trying to, I'm not just replicating what they do. I'm adding my twist onto it. So I'm not blindly copying 
I'm really trying to think and and add what I you know add my thinking to it and make it more make take their ideas but make it unique build on it and and that's how the game grows and and you know a lot I've learned from reading so a lot of stuff obviously on straight led approach motor learning I like some of Doug Lemov's stuff for classroom management and that to me has been the biggest kind of sure. influence I, I wouldn't really say it's I think sometimes coaches overemphasize the importance of watching practices going to coaching clinics because at the end of the day if, if it's just all this traditional shit you're getting yeah. how's it going to help yeah at, at some point but I, I want to ask though because I think it's it's a great uh, uh, what you're saying is that for sure you can learn with everyone but at the same time uh, you have to it's not enough to just go and watch practice or whatever so where did you and this is just a personal question where did you take that critical thinking that because again you're so young and and you've started doing that not this year <laughs> some years ago uh, so where did that come from because I'm, I will say it's not that usual but that's my stereotype yeah 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 so I think it was when I was probably about 20 so five years ago and that was when I first started reading stuff about motor learning slash CLA and just straight away I was like yeah this completely aligns because it it just makes no sense how we coach basketball today because it doesn't align with any of this stuff so and I, I mean I'm always critical with books I read I'm I'm very I, I read it always from a skeptical perspective. So of course, like I'm reading Rob Gray's book now, How He Learned to Move, and it's it's great. But I'm even though I'm obviously biased towards CLA, it's important to still approach kind of everything you learn and think and be a sieve, not a sponge. Yeah. Okay. Right. I, I think that's really important. So you don't just blindly copy. And this is the only thing that I'd say like to coaches who are like using the stuff that Chris and I share and like coaches who watch my stuff, it's like, instead of just copying it and replicating it, think about how you can apply it and build on it and make it different. Sure. And that's how as a game, we can keep growing for, you know, pushing yeah. forward and being innovative. For sure. Well, that's a great point. Great way to finish. And, and because, well, uh, I'll, I'll finish with this note. Because the, the title of, of the podcast is Career Mode, and you know I've, I'm very curious on, we are all, so far, all the, all, the, all the guests have been basketball coaches, and there's so many ways to get into basketball coaching, professional or not, not professionally. So I'm assuming that the path that you've done to, to the last five years, from NBA to, to, um, to Belgium to now Italy, you haven't planned out five years ago, right? So how is that happening or how, how much has it changed from year to year? Now you, are, you have a little bit of a more stable situation, I'll, I'll, at least it looks like, but how, how do you manage not knowing what's, what happens next? Well, I think coaching is, unfortunately, the nature of the business is, is an unstable uh, profession and <laughs> you never know what's around the corner. I think um, you can as well, you can get too consumed in, in what's coming next and thinking about, oh, next year I, I need to do this or I'm leaving my contract. I have one year left. What am I doing after this? And I think so much of the time it takes coaches away from being present and actually doing the best they can in that 
particular moment and continuing to learn and invest in their craft. And I was just speaking with a coach the other day who's saying how, how busy he was with his season and how it's been frustrating because he hasn't had time to keep his learning up because he's just doing, he's an assistant coach, just doing everything the same for his head coach, video, practice planning, and not really learning anything new. And I think that's a big trap, the trap of the season, which coaches fall into where they get so neglected into being busy, but it's, it's not a type of busy, which is actually going to help them and help their development. And this is why I'm, the biggest thing I'm like work-life balance for me is critical so that coaches can actually have time to keep improving and keep learning and investing in their craft. For me, I'm, I'm increasingly believing, Diogo, that I'd find it very difficult to work for a team, a traditional-minded team, where like kind of coach welfare and rest isn't valued, which is, let's be honest, that's every team in Europe pretty much and professionally in, in other places. So for me, it's like, I don't want that life. Like I want to, I want to use my stuff and show how it makes an impact. But at the end of the day, I, I love the learning. It's a proven fact that when you learn endorphins are released in your body and, it, and you feel yeah. good, and for me, if I was in a situation where I couldn't do that and keep up all my self-study, I, I really wouldn't be that interested in, in doing it. Yeah. Um, so for me, my, my, my dream is to create a basketball utopia, if you like, <laughs> kind of through this prep program where um, we do things completely differently. And my, my dream would be that maybe in 10, 15, 20 years, if things have move from the 19th to the 21st century in yeah. basketball in Europe, people could look at what we do through, through this prep academy and, and be like, hmm, it was really, you know, the whole staff and players at this place who pioneered a, a new approach, a new way of doing things. And it's our generation, Diego, that can really change things and impact change as, mm -hmm. as kind of the whole old guard as they start to retire and, uh, and take kind of their old traditional practices with them it's up to our generation to think differently and to not settle for how things have always been done and and demand change and i think that's the only way we're going to move forward that's that's a great point that's a great point and i, I would like well I, not like before but i really don't have any more question now and i think that's a great way to to finish it uh, and summarizing you know keep learning keep, keep trying to to be self-critical of what you do uh, I think that this has been a, a really good minute here of, of talking basketball and challenging the way we think. So, Alex, thanks a lot for, for your time. I hope you enjoyed it. My and pleasure, dude. Keep it up. Everything you're doing is really uh, inspirational, man. So uh, credit to you and, uh, and thanks for having me on. Thank you.